In our series on Isaiah, we've seen that Isaiah starts off by mentioning the uh, coming Messiah and the blessings of his reign, and then he speaks of the destruction of the kingdoms of this world under the image of the fall of Babylon. And this is the section that we're in where he's been discussing the, the nations of this world and their coming and continuing fall. And he speaks <clears throat> of this now under a little different image. In uh, this 27th chapter, in the first verse, he speaks of the punishing of Leviathan. In verse 1, In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. This is another way of stating uh, the fact that uh, all forces and enemy nations that oppose God and his people will be destroyed. And also we can take the image uh, on over to the destruction of Satan and every opponent of God and his people. Then God speaks of the protection of the vineyard. And verse uh, 2, In that day sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine, I the Lord do keep it. That's interesting, the background of this picture of the vineyard is found in chapter 5 of Isaiah. And there the Lord spoke of having brought a vine out of Egypt and planted it in Canaan. And he says, uh, What more could I have done for my vineyard? I hedged it about, I put a tower in it, I cultivated it, and when I looked for grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And he says, this vineyard is the house of Israel. And he says uh, in the fifth chapter, uh, the men of Judah, his pleasant plant, and he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a crime. Because Israel did not bring forth fruit, he says, Therefore I will break down the hedges of my vineyard, and I will let it be trampled, and I will let the briars and the thorns eat it up. But here, there's a contrast. Here he says, This vineyard bring forth, brings forth wine. It's fulfilling its function. And I will keep it. What a precious statement. I, the Lord, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. There's a coming time when there'll be a different attitude towards this vineyard. God will cultivate it. He will water it. He will protect it day and night. Now, this, of course, is... Uh, can be seen as an image of God's protection of his people, his true people. Within the nation of Israel, even when he dealt with Israel, there would be a remnant of people that he would bless and protect. In our day, God has his church. This is his vineyard, in a sense. And his eyes upon her. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. He hedges us about. A New Testament way of stating this same truth would be, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And that's precious. How the Lord do keep it. I will water it day and night. He says that to you and to me, if you belong to him. But with the background of this vineyard being Israel after the flesh, in a sense, being the nation of Israel, and his having spoken of breaking down the hedge, and now he turns and uses the same 
image of a vineyard. What we have predicted here is really a future blessing for Israel after the flesh. A change in his attitude towards the nation of Israel. You notice he says in verse 4, Fury is not in me. Fury was in him. Wrath was in God at his nation because it brought forth wild grapes. And he eventually not only sent it to Babylon, but he scattered it to the four winds and took the kingdom of God from Israel and gave it to a nation bringing forth the fruit thereof, namely the Gentiles. But there'll be a change where his fury will be over. And he will begin to bless. He even goes on to speak of the conversion of his enemies. He says, Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them, I would burn them together. He says, The enemies of my people, instead of letting them overcome my vineyard, I will burn them up. Except... They take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. There's the possibility of even one of these enemies of God's people making peace with God by taking hold of his strength. What is God's strength? The better translation is refuge. What is God's stronghold or refuge? In the 32nd chapter of Isaiah, just a little further on, we read about the Messiah, a king who shall reign in righteousness. And then in the second verse, And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. God's refuge is God's Messiah, God's crucified Son, who died for you and me. And all men are by nature at enmity with God, but you can make peace with him and not be consumed by him if you lay hold on that refuge that he's provided in the Messiah whom he sent, Jesus Christ, who died for you and for me. We lay hold by faith as we know we cannot stand the fury of God Almighty and we'll be burned up like thorns and briars. We cast ourselves on Christ as God's provision and God's refuge. We trust Him and we surrender to Him. Then we'll have peace with God. The punishment of Leviathan is spoken of. The protection of the vineyard in the future. And then... The prosperity of Israel. Verse 6. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. He shall cause them of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Now, the thrust of this is that in the future, God will 
cause his people to sink their roots down. There will be tremendous growth that will influence the whole world for God, bringing forth fruit. Now, there are several possible interpretations. A possible interpretation of this has to do with this being a prophecy of what took place with the first coming of Jesus Christ. The Jewish people, Israel after the flesh, have never filled the face of the earth with fruit. And we could take this then as a prophecy concerning the fact that with the first coming of Christ and the Gentiles being grafted into the tree, becoming a part of the people of God, that the gospel went out to all of the nations and the world has been filled with fruit in that sense. This is the way Matthew Henry takes it. He says, He shall cause Jacob to take root, deeper root than ever yet, for the gospel church shall be more firmly fixed than ever the Jewish church was and shall spread forward. And we've seen other references in Isaiah to the fact of the blessing for the whole world that would would be a part and parcel of Messiah's coming. In uh, Isaiah 2, it was spoken of as a great spread of peace throughout the world. When nation would not lift up sword against nation, neither would they learn war anymore. That peace is spread. It's a real peace, not a national peace, a spiritual peace. That's happened. Now, that will reach an even greater fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth. He spoke of a time when the earth should be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's happened with the first coming of Jesus. Compared to prior to Jesus' coming, the earth's been filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that will reach an even greater fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth. It's possible, as Matthew Henry says, that what we have pictured here is Israel, the church of Jesus Christ, budding and blossoming and filling the face of the earth with fruit. But there's another possible interpretation, and one that appeals much more strongly to me with the, and the light of the whole context here. And this is the one that Charles Simeon states when Simeon says, In these words, Israel blossoming and budding, we may see what the Jews are destined to become. He says this, They shall yet, I doubt not, take root in their own land. Charles Simeon wrote that 200 years ago. They have taken root in their own land. He backed it up by referring to prophecies such as that in Deuteronomy 30, where Moses spoke of the curse that would come upon Israel. They would be scattered into all nations. But then God said, From thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. He refers to Zechariah 8 as another prophecy about them returning to the land. Zechariah wrote, after they had returned from Babylon. And he spoke of a yet future scattering and a yet future gathering when there would be children playing in the streets of Jerusalem. And we say, when, Zechariah? And he says in verse 23 of chapter 8, 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Has that ever come to pass when ten men took hold of every Jew scattered throughout the nations and said, We want to go with you. We've heard God is with you. Has that ever happened? Not yet. But it's going to. And that's what we have predicted here, I believe. Charles Hodge, in his Systematic Theology, states, The second great event, which according to the common faith of the church, this is nothing new, this is the common faith of the church down through the years, to precede the second coming of Christ, to precede the second coming of Christ, is the national conversion of the Jews. He says this is the general drift of Old Testament prophecies. And he quotes specific prophecies like Micah 5.7. The remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord and as a, a, sh as a shower upon the grass. The remnant of Jacob as a dew from the Lord, bringing forth fruit. Again, uh, he quotes from Zechariah 12. God says, I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Notice who's speaking. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Zechariah wrote this 400 plus years B.C. And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. That day's coming, says Charles Hodge. And he says the most decisive passage on this is Romans 11. Look at Romans 11 for a moment. Verse 11 through verse 15. Romans 11, verse 11. I say then, have they, speaking of the Jews, stumbled that they should fall? Is that the only purpose served by their having rejected their Messiah? God forbid, but rather through their fall salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them, the Jews, to jealousy. Make them want it. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, meaning their coming fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to immolation them which are my flesh, that I might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? John Murray, in my opinion, has written the finest commentary available on the book of Romans. In commenting on this passage, Murray says this, if 
fullness conveys any idea, it is that of completeness. Hence, nothing less than a restoration of Israel as a people to faith, privilege, and blessing can satisfy the terms of this passage. The argument of the apostle is not, however, the restoration of Israel. It's the blessing accruing to the Gentiles from Israel's fullness. The fullness of Israel, with the implications stated, is presupposed, and from it is drawn the conclusion that the fullness of Israel will involve for the Gentiles a much greater enjoyment of gospel blessing than that occasioned by Israel's unbelief. That's fantastic. Israel's unbelief brought fantastic blessing to Gentiles. Their fullness is going to bring even greater blessing, says Murray. Thus there awaits the Gentiles in their distinctive identity as such, gospel blessings far surpassing anything experienced during the period of Israel's apostasy. And this unprecedented enrichment will be occasioned by the conversion of Israel on a scale commensurate with that of their earlier disobedience. It's a great day coming for Israel and for us. Again, uh, he, when Paul goes ahead in verses 25 and 26 to say, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own conceits, how that <clears throat> blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. The fullness of the Gentiles, what is this? Many of us have read it, meaning the full number of the Gentiles, a time when no more Gentiles would come in. But Murray says no. He says we're headed for a day when as widespread as the gospel has been among Gentiles, it's going to reach a much wider spread, a fullness, a blossoming out. And at that time, there's also going to then be a fullness of Jews. And that's going to redound to an even greater fullness and blessing of Gentiles. Tremendous. A day when Jacob shall take roots, and Israel shall blossom in blood and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Meanwhile, though, there's a purging of Israel. And uh, Isaiah says in verse 7, Hath he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? As a comparison with Israel's enemies. God smote Israel's enemies. He smote Israel. But he didn't smite Israel like he smote his enemies. He smote Israel to correct him. He smote him in measure. He didn't destroy him like he destroyed his enemies. In verse 8, in measure, when it shooteth forth, he stayeth his rough wind in the day of his east wind, or he removeth him with his rough wind. In verse 9, by this therefore shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. It's a purgation. God's dealing with Israel is in terms of purging it, breaking it from its sin, softening in its heart. This is the fruit 
to take away his sin. In other words, as in sending the nation of Israel or Judah off into Babylon in captivity, God dealt with them and purged them from their sins, even so, a process of purgation is going on now. We look at Israel, I tremble when you see the nation surrounding Israel, their desire to devour her. What's that all about? Does that mean anything? Yes. It means something tremendous. It means Israel is undergoing a purging procedure on God's part, softening her heart, because she's going to turn to the Lord. Israel's going to turn, leave her sin, turn to the one whom she pierced, and see him and mourn over it. A pierced, a spirit of grace and supplication is going to be poured out. There's finally the picture of the gathering of Israel in the 12th and 13th verses. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river under the stream of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. Maybe in the commencement, it'll be like beating a few remaining olives off an olive tree. One by one, slow at the commencement. But then notice, And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the lands of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Jerusalem. In its progress, it will be like the blowing of a great trumpet. God's going to sound that gospel trumpet in the ears of Israel, and they'll begin to come in great numbers. It's a great day coming for Jew and Gentile. What is the purpose of prophecy such as this? It's not to arouse our curiosity. It's not that we get bogged down in the details of exactly when and exactly how. But it's to awake expectation and longing in our hearts. It's to encourage us. God says there's a great day coming for his church and his people, that the Jews are going to be like dew. They're going to bring a great new impetus to the church of Jesus Christ. They're going to come into the church. We are headed for a day of fullness. This church isn't going to dry up. Oh, I think that there's a large section of the church going to dry up and die. It's apostate. It's gone. But God's people are not going to dry up and die. God's people are going to come into a fullness. And the Jews are going to be jealous of it. And they're going to turn their heart being softened by this purging process. There's going to be a fullness of Jews. They're going to bring forth fruit over the face of the whole earth. And this will bring in an even greater fullness of Gentiles. There's a great day coming. Lift up your heads, Jesus says. When you see these things begin to come to pass, God's doing something in the world. There's our day, we're seeing things happen that haven't ever happened. Israel's back in the land. They've been out of the land 2,000 years. They're back in the land. There's a new thrust to the gospel gathering 
Not just in America, but around the world. In America, it's fantastic. When has there ever been anything like there is on the college campus? When I was in college, I couldn't find a Christian. Now you've got to run from them. They're after you. When has there ever been anything like two and three hundred thousand turning to God in a Muslim nation in Indonesia, in the Congo by the hundreds of thousands, in Korea? When has there been anything like that? God's doing something. A fullness is beginning right now. God's gathering nations against Israel because he's purging and he's preparing her heart. Lift up your eyes. Pray. Pray for this. Labor for it. We know our job. Our job is to sink our roots deeper. Our job is to bring forth fruit and to spread that gospel and to blow that trumpet around the world. But God says, blow it over towards the Jews. Blow it to one at a time. Because they are going to come. It's a great day coming. Let's be about our work. Let's rededicate ourselves. Let's don't be down in the mouth. Let's lift up our heads. Let's recommit ourselves to the task. Maybe you're not a Christian. Well, then you need to make peace with God. You need to lay hold of his refuge, that man who is a covert from the tempest. Trust Christ. What he did for you is pictured for you right here. His blood shed, his body broken. He says, take, eat. Whosoever eateth my flesh, drinketh my blood, hath eternal life. How do we eat and drink? He says, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Put your trust in Christ as your refuge. Surrender to him as your Lord. Do it right now. And partake, having done it. Trust Christ. Let this be a saying to him, I take you, I trust you as my Savior by faith.